Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Welcome to episode 32 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I make stuff and do stuff. And joining us tonight, you know her from such films as the editor and American Mary, it's Tristan Risk. Tristan, hi. Hello, gentlemen. (laughs) How you doing? I'm doing excellent. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I am... (laughs) It... It doesn't deserve the uh, the ire it has gotten, so this is a perfect opportunity for me to uh, plead my case to the public about its qualities. Definitely. So, um, <laughs> why why this film? Why specifically oh, this? Okay. So first of all, um, you know, we have a lot of interesting effects in modern filmmaking. What with a lot of the digital animation and the the builds that we see now. Um, and this is from, you know, a simpler time, and it still was really, really forward for a lot of its prosthetics, its costume work, because that was all practical stuff. Um, I love that it just was so, <laughs> so <laughs> shamelessly a cash grab, riding the crest of popularity from the toy line. They were just like, you know what? Screw it. We're going to show them, like, this is what you can do just based on the popularity of, like, one good toy concept. You get, like, the cartoon, you get the comic books, you get the the feature film, and yet somehow, even with, like, all these great elements, it's still somehow just kind of like, oh, just not quite, mmm. Could have been great, and yet, mmm. Um, yeah, I will say, too, though, like... To yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the fashion in this film, hands down, forever, I will love. <laughs> even forever. Uh, even Courtney Cox's nightdress towards the end. Oh, um, that's. See, I grew up in the era of Friends, so I'm not as enamored with Courtney Cox as people might have been <laughs> then when she was in the Bruce Springsteen video. Um, but just the rest of the outfits, like the the headpieces, the tiaras, the sparkles. Oh, you know, Dolph Lundgren had a cape. I'm like, why does He-Man have a cape now? <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> no um, capes, man. That's the rule. Like, everyone knows that rule. No capes. Um, how old were you when you saw this for the first time? Oh, I was like right at the right age because this was released in 87, so I would have been six. And I remember seeing it um, not in theaters. I saw it at my friend's house on beta. Yeah. Um, yeah, right? Don't tell us how to live dangerously. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I, think I, I think I actually saw it like after it came out because this was when it had gotten to video. So <clears throat> it had been out for a minute then. And 
I remember just thinking, like, this isn't anything like the cartoon. And I was almost put off by it because, you know, I was a kid and I was like, oh, their outfits are wrong. They don't look like my dolls. What the hell is this? <laughs> but I also really like the marriage of the high fantasy with the high technology and the, like, we're in space, we're in another dimension. And that was kind of like the world of Motu in the cartoons. And they're like, well, how the hell are we going to translate that into a live-action film? Because that sounds really expensive. <laughs> so what we have is the budget for a couple of the outfits and maybe a few scenes in Eternia. And um, we'll just shoot the rest in the real world because that's a lot less spendy. Yeah. <laughs> In, in the real world with zero extras. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to shoot at night in all the empty warehouses. And, yeah. And we're going to throw a keytar in there because merchandising, oh, man, like, we can sell a, a toy keytar. You want this. Definitely. Andy, this kind of sounds a little bit like uh, your experience of seeing the film <laughs> for the first time. Yeah. Um, I saw the film in the cinema on Boxing Day 1987. Nice. Yeah, I saw it. The day it came out, my mum took me to see it. I'm a card-carrying He-Man fan. I have Skeletor tattooed on my forearm. Um, <laughs> I was a member of the Masters of the Universe fan club, which um, when you joined, you got a little card and it had your Eternian name on it. And mine was Axon. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, when I went to see it, I, I vividly remember this being my first kind of cinematic disappointment. Like within 10 minutes, I was like that to my mum. <laughs> Who the fuck is Gwildor? <laughs> right? I was like, who, where was Orko? Yeah, exactly. This, who the fuck's this little asshole? Like, and, <laughs> he is not a replacement for Orko. I'm sorry. But yeah, no, it was the first no, no. time I ever remember leaving in a cinema thinking, huh, oh, that was quite bad. That is a very young age to have the magic of cinema kind of punctured for you. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. And then, like, I remember <laughs> not long after it, my gran um, bought me a couple of the fi- a couple of Masters of the Universe figures. And um, the figures mm-hmm. that she bought me were Blade from this film okay. and, mm-hmm. and Gwildor. Um, <laughs> That's just, like, bad luck selections by your gran. And uh, I-, I remember just being monumentally disappointed. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> it really sounds like a lot of your adult life cynicism was born out of this one experience that Although, might have been like the seed and everything grew out from there maybe, yeah. and I, apparently on the bus home my mum said that I asked her very loudly in front of people whether or not she would sleep with He-Man um, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if she answered the question. Maybe maybe she didn't. But uh, but yeah, that's kind of my my relationship with this. My relationship with this film. It's it's complicated. I didn't like it at the time. I've watched it loads of times since to try and convince myself that I like it, <laughs> and I still don't think I do. I will tell you what. The one thing I will say straight off the bat is that Frank Langella absolutely kills it. Yeah. He absolutely. is superb throughout, and so is James Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, Lubick. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'll come yeah. on. We'll come on to Lubick. Yeah. Um. Just for just for reference, uh, my relationship with this film began two and a half hours ago when I watched it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious about your impressions. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a strange one to see for the first time. Now I think uh, most of these films that are on here, um, I have seen them for the first time. But our, <laughs> but yeah, this was a 
This was interesting. Uh, Tristan, we make everyone that comes on the show do this before we get into kind of the real meat of the discussion. So um, obviously you've chosen Masters of the Universe for your film. So what we do generally is, uh, for the benefit of anyone who is uh, listening in without having seen this, Andy puts 30 seconds on the clock and we basically turn it over to you to uh, give us your best 30 second synopsis of Masters of the Universe. Okay, right. I think I can do this challenge. Um, All right. Free piece of advice going in, where these historically go wrong is an, an, over, an over-reliance on detail. Okay. People tend to get kind okay. of people tend to get very rooted in the first 10 or 15 pages and then the rest of it's kind of a rush job. So you're good to go. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Space warriors fall through a, a rip in time and wind up on our Earth and have to find a way to get back to save their own home world. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> you, t- you took the advice about uh, not going into detail very literally. I like it. But oh, yeah. I, I glossed over everything. I'm like, that's all you need to know. It's, yeah. yeah <laughs> they, spend, they spend a lot of time in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they sure do. Including, yeah. the crucially, the two main characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like how they managed to work in that uh, Julie is also an orphan. It's like, okay, cool. Just, oh, you know, God. for that. <laughs> Jesus. Right. I think that we should jump straight into this. Go. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Andy, a uh, common source of excitement for you, first and foremost, a Canon Films logo. Canon Films logo, love it. Uh, yep, this <laughs> was one of the, the kind of, when Canon just started snapping up big franchises, um, and obviously they did they did Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, and uh, they had plans to do uh, a super, uh, sorry, a Spider-Man film, which fell through, and this was the replacement. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that would have been any better. Um, but we've obviously done Life Force on the show as well, so you know what you're getting very much when you go into uh, a canon film. Yes, okay, after Life Force, that's a very good example of the territory we're entering into here. <laughs> but shitter! Hey, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, space vampires! <laughs> um, and so we're getting quite a lot of information in voiceover at the start here. Yeah. Uh, kind of getting that, you know, uh, Castle Grayskull is kind of this beacon of good, mm-hmm. kind of seen or um, overseen uh, by the uh, sorceress. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll, and the armies of darkness is kind of they're always kind of in there trying to take it over. <laughs> and yep. it seems like to a large extent at the beginning here, uh, they've made some serious inroads into that. Well, they're very much succeeding. Yeah, we cut like we cut we cut straight mm-hmm. in, and uh, they're right in there. <laughs> um, and we get our first look here um, at uh, Frank Langella's Skeletor. Yeah. Who, who I think looks yeah. good. I actually like the look of Skeletor. Well, they had to find a way around it because they couldn't just have like hollow, empty eye sockets mm-hmm. for the character. He, they, the guy had to be able to see. So they, they I think the, the build that they wound up doing on him was uh, was really good, all things considered. Yeah, and I, I like the costume. He doesn't have too much skin on show. They didn't have to paint his whole body blue. Uh, yeah, he's got a weird cod piece, though. <laughs> They always do. It's always, it's always this like weird, like okay, they have a really simple thing, and then like the dick pouch. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're in there, and Skeletor gets kind of briefed on the ongoing war effort on what seems to be like a six-mile walk to his throne. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a long way to get to the top. 
Um, and yeah, obviously, so we kind of find out here that He-Man's kind of leading the charge against them. Yeah, he's the leader of the rebellion, mm-hmm. but like like a Princess Leia type character. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I guess the sorceress, she's this kind of, I guess she kind of controls all the good in Eternia. But she's played by uh, Christina Pickles, who is Courtney Cox's mum and friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Small world. Yeah. <laughs> Giant universe, um, as we learn pretty quickly going through this. But she's she's enchained, she's enslaved, and Skeletor's now the master. But she's still she's still very well turned out. Like I like even though she's enslaved, she has like really good Lady Gaga type outfit situation <laughs> going on. Very much so, very <laughs> much so. She's got a really sparkly kind of glass tiara. Yeah, they've got, they've, they've preserved yeah. quite a lot of dignity for taking a prisoner. Like, they haven't skimped on the whole uh, Sartorial Elgin's thing. Yeah, no one's making her wear a slave girl bikini. No, exactly. <laughs> Skeletor, Skeletor, strangely enough, respects boundaries. <laughs> Can't be separate others. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he does because he spends a lot of time cupping Evil Lynn's face quite close to his crotch. Yeah, there is that. They seem to have kind of like a relationship, though. I don't know how healthy it is. He, I seem to recall him calling her a boob quite a lot, but he called everyone. Oh, in the cartoon. He, yeah, he called everybody boobs. It <laughs> wasn't boob. just like strictly her. <laughs> you boob, and he's just like, I love that. That's just like the shade he throws. <laughs> I would, I would really have loved it if they kept the whole Franklin Gale performance, all the dialogue, all the lines, but they just got Alan Oppenheimer to do the voice. Um, from the cartoon. Oh yeah. <laughs> we got our first look at He-Man here because he kind of looks on defiant as hologram Skeletor kind of broadcasts a surrender or die message to the wider world. <laughs> um, on Eternia. This is again. Hashtag politics. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter where you're from. Like, does not. Um, yeah, uh, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, terrible in this film. Uh, mm. And extremely oily. Very, very, um, you know, moist in the whole thing. <laughs> you just, you, right, right, yeah, Take me back to that question I asked my mum. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm really curious what your mum's answer was. Maybe she'll get, it's, maybe it's, she'll get in touch off the back of the episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want to know how the rest of that conversation played out. I'd wager not. Uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> But yeah, Dolph, um, thick accent, still at this point not particularly fluent in English. Yeah, just a bit of a, a stilted performance all around from Dolph. Look, to be honest, I don't know who I would have had in 1987 take this role. Because you're going to need a relatively big star at this point. He was coming off the back of things like Rocky Four. But I, I mean, and you do need that you know, kind of the, the kind of physicality as well. Yeah, so. I mean, the only other giant guys at that time would have been Stallone, which is laughable. Schwarzenegger, equally mm. laughable. Uh, I guess Hulk Hogan, <laughs> which would have been interesting. I can't believe that's the one that you didn't throw in laughable about. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah, man. Hulk Hogan. Well, it was just the times, wasn't it? It was like, okay, we have to cast for the guy who had the body. It wouldn't have occurred to an actor to be like, okay, well, if I'm cast for this, I just spend like six months training really hard and not eating garbage. In the 80s, they're like, well, what, give cocaine and booze and cigarettes up? That's ridiculous. Get <laughs> that Austrian guy to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah your, um, your window or your kind of slate of people that could have done this was probably relatively small. Yeah, I mean, and Hulk Hogan, by the way, he he's the only person I could think of that had that kind of blonde hair. Also true. Oh, but he he did Suburban Commando too. So I mean, he did have his his own Masters of the Universe. 
in a, in a way, but it was just yeah. I watched good. I watched Suburban Commando about six months ago. It's fucking excellent. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased that somebody else knows that movie when I reference that. You mean Shep Ramsey? Yeah. Shep Ramsey. Dolph slash let's say He-Man goes is pretty much straight into combat mode here as he dispatches a few robot red shirts. Yep, robots um, because he wasn't allowed to kill people. Um, that was the big no-no coming down from Mattel. Don't kill mm-hmm. anyone. Uh, so he killed many, many men dressed as robots. <laughs> kind of dressed as Death Star gunners. Very black, shiny. Yeah, that was kind of that was kind of the first thing I thought as well. <laughs> Straight off the back of this, we get some uh, pretty rapid-fire character introductions. Yep. <laughs> in that we meet uh, Man at Arms, <laughs> Tila, and of course uh, Gwildor. Oh, Gwildor. Uh, so Fenorian locksmith and irritant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when they start talking um, and we start getting some kind of exposition about where all these where all these guys kind of figure in the story, mm-hmm. and we realise that um, Goldor has basically invented a teleporter that uh, Evelyn has stolen from him, mm-hmm. and yeah, and but he's held on to like a prototype, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, they they want to basically get that off him and kill him to stop him from creating anymore, <laughs> and. At this point, it's established that Skeletor wants Gwildor dead, and based on the evidence thus far, I can kind of see his point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you were doing a hostile takeover, it would just make sense. Yeah. I feel like my choice was for entirely different reasons. Uh, you want Gwildor dead. Oh, I, I just I, he just sold pain in the arse for me right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. But someone said on our Instagram the other day that he looks a bit like um, British celebrity chef and shoplifter Anthony Warrell Thompson, and he does. <laughs> he really does. Um, but you've never seen them photographed together, so maybe. <laughs> that's that's be, definitely true. <laughs> that would be an amazing photo if someone went, oh, by the way, it exists, and sent a photo of Billy Barty in his costume standing next to a drunk <laughs> Anthony Worrell Thompson. Um, they are, uh, they're kind of herded out of Gildor's kind of hideout. Yeah, he's got, a little, he's got a little bunker that he lives in. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, but it's kind of, it's minions of Skeletors basically turning up to kind of yeah, yeah. And key. Yeah, the back door to Gwildor's house seems to lead directly into the throne room of Grayskull, which is uh, convenient. Highly. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they get there absolutely no time. It's like, yeah, they get herded out and literally, yeah, not just like on the perimeter of Castle Grayskull, not in shouting distance, literally in the throne room. <laughs> just like cramering into the throne room, just like, hey! <laughs> exactly. You get your first look at Karg here? Is that his name? Yeah, Karg. Yeah. Karg with a. Very, very fleetingly, you do, yeah. Yeah, Karg is such a bitch. Like, he's such a (laughs) snivelling little bitch. He's got that Buffon hairdo, that really big Buffonted hairdo, and that that fur cape. Ugh. He's. I hate Karg. I'm so, like I'm, I, I even though they're all kind of like the you know the main four um kind of minion. Yeah. Uh So you've got um I. Blade is one, right? <laughs> bald, bald, spiky with swords. Uh huh. Yep. You've got sword, reptilian, spiky. Yep. Looks like the predator. Mm-hmm. Beastman, Beast le- the legend, the only one who's actually who actually comes from the toy line, uh, who is extremely rigid faced. Agreed. And Karg with the uh, the hair and the buffon and uh, very clearly little man syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I made the contention that the only one of those four that's got kind of like um, really properly identifying characteristics, apart from the fact that, like you say, Karg seems to be kind of sniveling and a little bit more of a suck-up than the others. Uh-huh. I, um, I think that yeah. Beast, Beastman's the one that I think that's probably has got the strongest actual kind of persona here. Mm-hmm. Potentially. Um, can I just say, though, that I'm, in, I'm encouraged that Evelyn, even though she was abused by uh, Skeletor, I mean, she was still kind of like the captain. Oh, yeah. She was the one who was leading. I mean, look, there was fuck-ups galore, but, I mean, she was still, you know, equality for women and all that. You know, I, I'll just recognize that right now. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's, 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 she's very much, it seems like, in a position of authority over those four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What a fucking yeah. what a poison chalice to be given that fucking job, <laughs> <laughs> looking after these four assholes. And actually, I just want to talk very briefly about Evil Lynn, Meg Foster. I know I've mentioned her on the show before, mm-hmm. and uh, when we were watching Masters Universe before coming to do this, uh, Jackie had a little dig because it seems that I have a thing for Meg Foster, but it's those <laughs> it's those eyes, man. Her, yeah, her eyes are fucking awesome, and I think she does a great job in this. Yeah, she is phenomenal, and her outfits are just again like the outfits are slaying it in this with like her her headpiece. It's all just kind of like evil evil sorceress couture. Right away, you saw her, and you go, "All oh, right, well that's evil Lynn. There was there was never any yeah. never any doubt. Not like when Gwildor fucking turns up. Yeah, you're waiting for Orko to come on. Okay, anytime now. And where is he? By the way, he's going <laughs> to make a smart-ass remark anytime now. Yeah, just and then you see Gildor, and you're just like, Jesus, fuck. <laughs> I was never a fan of Orko. Again, I found him to be irritating. But he had a charm about him. He had a kind of a youthful uh, kind of innocence about him uh, that, mm-hmm. that Billy Barty did not manage to execute uh, as Gildor. Not so much, no. No. <laughs> Now, the film's kind of central conflict established at this point, and I want someone else to talk me through this because I only saw this for the first time, this scene, like an hour ago, and I feel like it's going to lead me if I try and pick it apart. What's your problem? No, no, no. Just like, just kind of, you know, just like front to back, the what they're chasing, the art, like the kind of artifact and how that works. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, someone, anyone, I'm uh, just opening the floor. As best I understand it, the cosmic key, in theory, would allow Skeletor not only control of Eternia, but the ability to potentially invade other galaxies, planets, whatever. Right. He thinks he has the only one. Gwildor has the other. So they want that. He wants that back, and he's prepared to follow Gwildor across the universe in an attempt to get that back and destroy He-Man before the moon rises. Yeah, because then when the moon rises, all of the sorceress's uh, powers for good transfer into him. So he gets a level up, and he wants this extra key. So he's got nobody else has access, and he's got both of the keys. So he would be effectively a uh, superpower. Got it. Okay, that is kind of vaguely what my read was. I just wanted to get a good grounding in it before we move on. Well, you were right. Yeah, oh, you nailed it. Um, <laughs> round about this time Mitch you, I heard you chunter under your breath for the first time shut up Gwildor um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah I did do that um, also um, when, you're, when you were talking about the approach of Moonrise um, and yeah the kind of the powers turn over at that point um, I quite like the fact that um, we're told that it is uh, when we're talking about how time sensitive this is Oh yeah. Uh, someone says that it's 0.84 chromons to moonrise, <laughs> and that's just left to hang in the air as if you're supposed to know what that means. <laughs> How long is it? It's exactly the running length of this film. <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, a chromon. Exactly. A chromon seems to move quite slowly because um, when they're in Charlie's shop, I think it's only like 0.6 something chromons. So, uh, which, to be fair, actually, that might tie in with your theory, Tristan. Well, that, could a, that a chromon is precisely the runtime of this film. I, I think that's fair. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a happy coincidence. Well, you know, I like to specialize in quantum physics. <laughs> I would like if on the DVD for this it just had running time one chrome on. <laughs> exactly one chrome on. <laughs> and not uh, a preton more. <laughs> preton, don't do <don't. laughs> um, So, yeah, so they, they kind of they make a short term escape. Yeah, out of, um, Grave, um, out of Grayskull. Gwildor, for someone who created the cosmic key, doesn't seem to know how to work it, like, at all. He just randomly presses shit and hopes for the best. Which, I mean, given that he's kind of like, you know, sort of the creator, it's like, dude, you think you know how this works, right? Like, you, you invented it. I imagine if you built an airplane, you'd have an idea of how it works. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think if he doesn't know, then what chance does anybody else have? Yeah, then he's kind of like, well, Scott George might have, like, dumb idiot luck, but he's not also going to be in a situation where he's going to be able to program anything in there. Did you also? Did anyone else also ever notice that uh, He-Man has absolutely no input at all in terms of strategy, in terms of uh, any kind of plan? All the plans are made by Tila and Man at Arms or Gwildor or Kevin. He-Man really just exists to smash stuff. He's the muscle. He's but, the Hulk of the group. Everybody else is the Avengers, and he's he's Bruce Banner. <laughs> and while that's true, Tristan, while certainly on the surface of it, that's true. He-Man doesn't seem that strong. He doesn't seem really no. any stronger than Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> exactly as strong as Dolph Lundgren is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if, if you were to measure his strength, you would measure it Dolph's. <laughs> exactly what Dolph. <laughs> this is around the point that we find out that they've, they've effectively escaped to Earth. Um, mm-hmm. And we find this out in... Um, I quite like the way this is done, because it cuts to, I believe, Robbie's Ribs and Chicken. Mm-hmm. Which is yes. where we meet uh, Julie, played by Courtney Cox, obviously. Are you just going to skip over the mm-hmm. scene where they're, in, they're walking in the woods and they come across a random cow in the woods and then Gwildor talks to it for ages like I, a pain in the ass? Uh, yes, I would I would very much like to gloss over that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Moo! Moo! Stop that. <laughs> Moo! Fuck off, man. <laughs> but, um, yeah... <laughs> He's the Jar Jar Binks of this film. That's he exactly what I thought. Jar Jar Binks of this I, film. I thought that so many times. I thought that so many times. <laughs> um, or I guess I guess Jar Jar is the Gwildor of episode one, I suppose. Yeah. But um, yeah, we meet Julie at this point, uh, Courtney Cox. She is moving to Jersey, it's established, I think. Yeah. Uh, apparently without her boyfriend, Kevin Corrigan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's uprooting, uh, leaving her job, leaving her house, leaving her dead parents and her boyfriend and going to Jersey to start afresh. I believe it's Jersey, yeah. On the East Coast. So, yeah, it's, it's to uh, Jersey. Um, so we see, we see her kind of leaving what's presumably her last shift there, and then she gets in, the car, gets in the car and we meet Kevin for the first time. Based on very little evidence, I kind of assumed that Kevin was going to be more of a like jock character than you get, like considerably <laughs> more, I thought. Yeah, he kind of uh, he kind of read like he was going to be more of that, and then it's like, oh, plot twist, huh? All right, all right then. Yeah, like certain tie wearing musician plays like, keyboard oh. in a band. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, he's the sensitive type. Cool, he's <laughs> <laughs> an artist. <laughs> I dig it. <laughs> I would say that their last day together isn't very good. 
if this is to be indeed the last day together, it consists of visiting her dead parents' grave. And eating ribs in the back of a car. And then watching, she goes to watch him while he sound checks for his band. Rather hey, than, babe, I know it's your last night uh, in town, but come to my gig tonight. <laughs> it's, 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 I know it's your last night in town, but come to the most boring part of my live show. Come to the sound check. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's got like, a, you'll he's... never, you'll be bragging to all your friends about the cool soundtrack. It's just like, I got to, you got to say you were with the band. They didn't, they didn't just like, just spend the last few hours just fucking in the back of his van? No, no. Chicken wings, dead parents, and soundcheck. That's, uh, the you holy, know. The holy trinity of romance. <laughs> yeah, well, 1980s romance, there you go. And then have a Pepsi. Exactly. <laughs> um, somewhere in the middle of this, you kind of you realize that they've ended that our main characters, our main protagonists, have ended up on Earth because you see part of this from the perspective of Tila, who's kind of watching from trees nearby. Shrubbery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Creepy. Yeah, along with uh, Mana Arms, who says some pretty weird stuff here. I mean, so, so help me out here. It's established, and am I right in saying that Mana Arms is Tila's father? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Yep. Yes. Okay, so when they are looking and they see the two people kind of making out back in the car, and he said, in the back of the car, and he said, I was doing that before you were born. Yeah. Like, is it kind of like a weird, like, guilt trip thing that he's saying? Like, yeah, I haven't done that since because, ah, parenthood? Or is it just kind of like, kind of like, I've been doing that since you, which, and then that's that creepy, like, Trump daughter vibe. Yeah, yeah. It's no yeah. good. I was doing that before you were born, and then some. Like, it's such a weird thing to say. That's how you got here. Okay, Dad, stop. It's gross. I think, um, considering the available options, I hadn't considered uh, your one, Tristan. I like that better. I like that I was doing that before you got here. Can I eye roll? All right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like no more fun for Dad kind of thing. I prefer that. I think that that's marginally... Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's marginally less troubling. I'm just going to pretend that that's the tone that they were going for and go with that. I'm happy with it. I just think it was yeah. Man at Arms trying to be body and uh, have a little joke. and uh, Being ribald. Ribald, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, it, it comes across as just a bit seedy. In the midst of all this, we also get the alarming revelation that Julie blames herself for her parents' death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, part of, uh, like, I think it's stage two of the romantic triple is when they go to the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, and it's at that point that she opens up about the fact that, yeah, she obviously, like, uh, she obviously blames herself um, for her parents' yeah. death because she lied about studying. She didn't, her parents wanted them to go to the beach. Um, and she said no, she was studying, but in an actual fact, she went to see Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her parents died mm-hmm. in a plane crash on the way to the beach. So they flew a plane, a private plane, to the beach and crashed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, got you. Um, presumably quite far away. Yeah, I mean, hmm. I mean, presumably, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then straight out of this, while we're still in the graveyard, actually, they happen on the cosmic key. Yeah, after Kevin shows some grade A boyfriend and when she says, uh, I wish I could change things, and he goes, well, you can't. Thanks, Captain Empathy, that's great. And then he's like, oh, hey, what's this? I bet I could play it. And she's like, yeah, I bet you can play that. I'll just, like, swallow my feelings. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so true. She's clearly not done with that conversation. And he's like, oh, my God, it's a Japanese synthesizer. 
<laughs> and she's just like, oh, like I have to hear you noodle around on one more goddamn. Fine, we'll go to the music store. <laughs> yeah, shop about your dead parents. Look what I found. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'll, I was just gonna open up, but instead I'll go stare at that stupid Hello Kitty base again. You <laughs> <laughs> talk to Charlie. Um, so they, um, they kind of unknowingly, obviously, or Kevin does anyway, because he like he mistakes this for a synthesizer, which I guess is not an unreasonable assertion considering it it plays musical notes. Very um, much uh, synthesized eighties musical notes. Yes, exactly. Um, but he kind of inadvertently gives away his position to Skeletor because they can kind of map those things. Skeletor yeah. obviously thinks that that is uh, He-Man and Co giving away their position, and thus the kind of like the chase element of the film kind of begins. Yeah, and it doesn't really let up <laughs> at all. Uh, it just becomes one big chase sequence from place to place. But uh, Kevin says, "Let's go and show this to Charlie. Charlie's this the guy that runs the music shop. He'll definitely know what it is because he's seen every instrument in the world. Uh, he's just he's just a font font of knowledge. Uh, nothing he doesn't know." And uh, Julie weirdly says, "I want to stay at the school on my own to say goodbye to it." <laughs> That's fucking weird. That's strange. I don't know. She, it's she's like one of those people who marries a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's projecting or bad writing or something, but I just feel, no, I don't like it. I think that basically they needed to engineer a situation where she was going to be by herself in the school and they didn't really know how to do it. And I think that that's how, because um, her needing to have a private moment with the building to say goodbye to it is like just what they settled on because they needed to get rid of him for a sec. They didn't even need to necessarily do that. He, they could've, he could've just been like, I need to go do this. Would you mind staying here? Look after the gear or something like that. Could've been anything. Yeah. But yeah. more okay. A-plus boyfriend. It's like, oh, I didn't drop off my books and get my refund. God damn it. Like, Yeah. It was... <laughs> There's other plausible reasons for going back to the school, but I digress. She she finds herself back in the school, which leads her right for attack. Yes. Yeah. And what an attack it is, by the way. Well, not before poor Carol, the janitor, gets destroyed, like, gets absolutely brutalised by Beastman. Yeah. Yeah, Carol feels like the most innocent of the innocent victims in this. Well, Carl actually approaches the, the first encounter with Beastman and Karg and all that. He approaches that quite pragmatically. He's not like... What the fuck are these people? What the fuck is this? He's just like, right, guys, come on, get yourselves, get yourselves to fuck, get out. The school is closed. On your way. Like, <laughs> right? If it was me, I would be like, what the fuck? Yeah, if this guy's just like cool as anything. Just like, ah, oh, goddamn cosplayers, just get out of here. No, no, no. You got to be down at the, the annex at the other end of the college. You don't belong in this part. Shoot. <laughs> but yeah, this is the first of many examples of minimal or zero like human reaction to absolutely insane otherworldly things happening. <laughs> like this is, this is the first taste of yeah, either they're not being a human soul in sight, or the tangential human characters. Um, reacting to absolutely inexplicable phenomena with complete impassivity. It's like, this is a really strange... Okay, we're going with it, fine. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, he's just like, ah, oh, punk kids. <laughs> yeah. I love the and when uh, the portal opens in the school and all the baddies kind of jump out of it and they've all got like a ridiculous kind of, this'll be the pose for the action figure pose. <laughs> 
Yeah, it seemed like that was a very deliberate thing. Like, okay, we already sculpted these, so like, don't don't get like artsy or anything. Just do what the director tells you. I tell you, um, if you're talking, if you're dangerous talking, move. We gotta go though. If you're talking about if you're talking about Kramer entrances, though, Karg gives one of those when he comes out of the portal. <laughs> yeah, just like strike your hero pose. Okay, good. <laughs> And then what happens is they attack Julie, and uh, considering these are Skeletor's four best guys, she does an absolutely outstanding job of evading capture. Yeah, she's super Just resourceful. amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, she, she, throws, she throws ammonia in Beastman's face at one point. She does, yeah. yeah. Which um, <laughs> can only serve to help Beastman's face, considering it does not move at any point when he's roaring, his mouth never opens, like, it's... It's quite bad. Yeah, he looks like he's had like one of those trips to a Botox party, and he just got just full of the the uh, that little nan- that virus that freezes your muscles, and it just stayed like that. And now he's got to do the whole movie, and everyone's like, "We know what you did." <laughs> he's just constantly drooling like a motherfucker as well. I, I think it might even be real. Uh, just it's like-, like we bought the ultra slime, we have to use it. <laughs> Um, Kevin blissfully ignorant to all this though well he's hanging out with, he's in his, his happy place with Charlie in the music store he's like hey Charlie what do you think of this crazy thing Charlie also thinks it's Japanese straight off the bat yeah despite the fact that it's it was like well this is way too cool to be made by North American hands this is clearly a Japanese model these <laughs> are intricate Asian hands that have made this they uh they head back to school they kind of get word that something's happened mm-hmm. and when they come back, or should I say, when Kevin comes back, so I don't think Charlie goes with him. Uh, Charlie's got a shop to run. Of course he does, yeah. Um, so he gets there, and um, he has um, a kind of weird altercation with uh, Lubick. Uh, Detective Lubick. Detective Lubick, yeah. who um, we can talk about a little more in a sec. But their interaction is so hostile that I genuinely had no idea whether or not he was getting arrested. <laughs> Well, neither does he, because yeah. he's like, wait a minute, are you, are you arresting me? Or And he's like, no, we're going to go and ch- try and find your girlfriend. Yeah, but see, when um, he was like, yeah, let's go find your girlfriend, son, he does that in such an aggressive way. I was like, wait, hang on, wait, are you, though? Like, what's happening in the next scene, they break into Julie's house, and they've, they've got chicken and ribs with them, and they're eating chicken and ribs in the kitchen. So they've obviously stopped off on the way. It's not that important to find Julie, not important enough to stop them stopping off at Robbie's ribs. But ribs... <laughs> but also ribs. Fair enough, Tristan. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, I've withdrawn my point. <laughs> the 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 rush to find the the girls is just oh, and and we need to buy the time. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, and we see Julie being pursued. Yeah, meanwhile, He Man is walking the streets of LA dressed like that, and no one cares. <laughs> no one cares. No one's. Well, actually, that's because there's no one no on the streets. Yeah, there was no extras whatsoever in this film. It was safe to walk down the street because it wasn't full of other people who would be like, hey, this is our bit where we do the cosplay, man. you got to go up by Man's Chinese Theatre if you're going to do that. This is our corner. <laughs> yeah, and like... <laughs> up all those dodgy back Copyright alleys. There was nightmare. No, no, bum, <laughs> no bums or crazy people up the back alleyways. There was no... No junkies, no hookers, nothing like that. It was, uh, yeah, completely empty. Before we move on, I do want to talk a little bit in general about um, Detective Lubick as a character. I think he's brilliant. Obviously, he's played by James Tolkien, who was um, Principal Strickland in Back to the Future. And uh, he pretty much plays the same character in this 
uh, he also plays kind of the same character in Top Gun, but he, uh, instead of being a pilot instructor or a school principal in this film, he's a cop. Yeah. Very officious to the last. I don't know. He's like kind of like all of the good and the bad cop, but like just I'm a good cop, but I'm just really bad at being communicative in any way that isn't just like really loud. I think that's what I remember about him the most is he was just like really unnecessarily loud. It's like he was trying to act like a little bit harder to kind of make up for other things. And it's just like, okay, dude, you can just dial it down just a little bit. Yeah, I think that like um, it seems like he's always trying to kind of develop an understanding for something, but is so incredibly easily wound up that he just ends up like <laughs> flying into an irrational rage all the time. Yeah, it's just it's like, dude, like you're Nick Caging. Uh oh. <laughs> Definitely. At, at no point does he drop. Does does he kind of suspend his disbelief? Does he he uh, he just completely and utterly believes this to be an earthbound incident? Like he just takes it all down the the red tape route and I love him for that I love him for that and his complete his complete trust in the law and his complete unwillingness to waver from the line yeah he's just like got guys running around in loincloths and shields and and swords and these laser guns and he's like who's gonna pay for all this He's like, put your goddamn hands up! Yeah, I think I think, <laughs> I think he's, he spends the entire film trying to rationalise these crazy events in terms he can understand. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> well, I th- yeah, I think that's like the com- shared experience when you see this film is you're just trying to rationalise, but but like, but like, why would he have like just kept the prototype? Why wouldn't have Skeletor just taken the prototype too? Like, uh, <laughs> oh no, I'm thinking about it too much now. Damn it, I wasn't gonna do that. <laughs> it's always dangerous. So, like, you're just trying to anchor it to something, which I think is what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in fact, I, I'm quite happy to say he's kind of an avatar for the audience in that way. Yeah, very much. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> no point. Julie meets He-Man here for the first time. He saves her, and uh, a battle ensues in an alleyway. But at no point does she ask why you dress like that. Completely accepting, as is everyone, of the way that He-Man is dressed and the way that He-Man behaves. I wish we lived in such an accepting, tolerant world, you know? Because I can tell you, maybe that's just kind of where it, what it was like in New Jersey in 1987, but I'm pretty sure that is not the universal. No. But I'll move to that in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh... also like maybe she's just less inclined to ask questions because she's been presented with a very convenient exit strategy from a very difficult situation. True. Also true. You'll take any you'd take any way out of that. Uh yeah, right there, Mitch. Mm. At this point we find out that uh in the, the intervening half an hour since we last saw him, um Gwildor has stolen a pink Cadillac and upgraded it with Eternian technology so that it now goes a million miles an hour and is full of computers and gadgets and not unlike the uh, the DeLorean. He's a locksmith. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't you know he's also an interdimensional auto mechanic? Didn't you know that? Yeah, so, uh, that lumpy head holds much knowledge. <laughs> maybe, okay. maybe, maybe locksmith is just much more of a catch-all term on Eternia. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like it just it's it's more like an umbrella term. Yeah, exactly. I there's something around here that I thought was genuinely it's played for laughs and it works. I right. think. Um so worth mentioning also, somewhere in the middle of this, the four um the four kind of main kind of minion people who were kind of part of that mission under Evil Lynn go back 
and report back to Skeletor that the mission was un- un- uh, unsuccessful and uh, we lose Saurod at this point. Yeah, Skeletor's not happy with that and disintegrates him. Uh, yeah, Saurod, I think, probably your most forgettable of those four anyway. Probably the most expendable in some ways. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But, I mean, there's probably a lot of dead stock of that particular toy somewhere <laughs> in a warehouse. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these Jar Jar Pink figures. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Same deal. I think yeah. he looks quite cool. I think he looks, he's probably the coolest looking out of all of them. Yeah, but I just, I didn't have much of an emotional attachment to, to him. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think the film gives you much of a chance to, really. No, no. But yeah, at this point, um, we see that it kind of cuts between uh, Kevin and uh, Lubick in the house. And they're about, and they put mm-hmm. the, uh, and they put the ribs or the chicken or whatever it is in the microwave. Uh-huh. And um, mm-hmm. Evelyn and Karg realize that them well. They know that they see that something is blocking the signal when they're trying to track the key. So they mm-hmm. like, destroy it and they just remotely blow up the microwave. <laughs> Which I think, like the entire way that's put together, works for me as a like as a as a comedic scene. You're so easily pleased with little things like that. I really am though. <laughs> It's the little things that get you through the movie, though. Like, it's those little moments where you're like, actually, is this really as bad as you think? And then you watch a little bit more, and you're like, mm, oh, and then something funny happens again. And you're like, ah, oh, this isn't terrible. That's, that, is, that is so true. I kind of feel like little things like that are the kind of things that are kind of keeping me sweet. Well, <laughs> Just when things are starting to go your way, though, Mitch, uh, Gwildor turns up in a flowery hat and sunglasses. Oh, my God, I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> you're like I like this and then he's like hey guys look what I found and you're like oh for fuck's sake it's like nothing like a little bit like transphobic like okay yeah he's in a dress oh how funny oh is he in a dress the male as well character's in a dress yeah. well it's just it's kind of like oh look it's funny because he's in a dress because he's a boy and ha 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 and, and he doesn't know any better because he's from another planet it's just kind of like uh yeah, that's good. It's, that's, I just don't like him. I just, just I fuck that guy. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, 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 that entire thing is annoying and bothers him on a number of levels. I think I would like to know if any of our listeners actually during the feedback sections or anything, if anyone's going to come back and say that they actually like the character, the character of Gwildor, if they related to it in any way or if they found him endearing. Yeah, like I, let, let's open up the floor on that one, and, and if anyone wants to defend Gwildor and and his attributes, short though maybe, um, I w- I would like to see what someone who's on uh, Team Gwildor say in his favor, because I'm you know I'm pretty short on what I can think. He was a character build for somebody. Somebody got to make that character, so yay them. <laughs> you know. I guess, yeah. But he's also a character uh, added, added for children. He's added so that kids go, yeah, let's get an, an, a, like a plush Gwildor or like I had against my will the shitty Gwildor figure which got tortured, by the way, by the other figures. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like burnt him, burnt him with lighters and all that. Like, <laughs> fuck you, Gwildor. <laughs> but uh, he, he was a character that was obviously made for children and I saw this when I was a child and I fucking hated Gwildor then. What I would say is I, I'm not going to rule out the possibility of Gwildor advocates existing, though. Because um, we've drawn obviously, obviously we've drawn um, I th- what I think is a reasonable comparator between uh, Gwildor and Jar Jar Binks. Yes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I um, I know one person who is a Jar Jar Binks fan. One of them exists. It's my mum. 
Really? Oh, well, you you see, you can't get mad at your mom because she's like, I like that one, and you're like, oh. No, genuinely, like, um, when I was like, when did when did Phantom Menace come out? Ninety nine. Thanks. Right. So I was thirteen. Um, genuinely, we were on a family holiday, and I bought my mom a Jar Jar Binks like keyring keychain. Right. Which mm-hmm. stayed on her house key for I would say potentially the next. 14 years <laughs> um, that is amazing and and um and oh and only was retired because it fell into disuse like um it had been kind of it had such a paper round that well, it, genuinely, it became yeah. unusable yeah. yeah that was the that was the only reason that i got replaced fuck's sake sheila <laughs> so i would say not if it can happen for jar jar it can happen for Gilder. fair enough well i'm open to the possibility <laughs> so we can approach it with a healthy level of skepticism but I think just yeah. you know let's not rule it out if anyone out there likes Gwildor tell me why and I'll tell you why you're fucking wrong <laughs> Gwildor's a dick change my mind <laughs> I'm going to like, make one of those memes out of that I like when the shit starts hitting the fan here um, Lubick threatens uh, threatens them all with 850 years in jail <laughs> just an arbitrary figure yeah, it's just like, what, wait, wait, no, you're not a judge who's doing sentencing. That's just, <laughs> no, no. I'm just thinking, I'm overthinking it again, guys. Stop me. Okay, so they all get cornered in Charlie's store. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Another thing started reading Finally. in its head here that annoyed me, and it's the kind of mid battle banter between He Man and Man at Arms. They keep throwing each other these little shady comments back and forth to kind of G each other on in the battle. It was like, yeah, check out my big dick. What about my big balls? Like, like, fucking just get on with it. Eyes on the prize. And then Tila has to come in and kind of... Uh, then she's got a really kind of lame joke where she goes, huh, woman at arms. You're like, oh, come on, Tila, don't do that. Don't be reductive. <laughs> um, just to make sure we're on the... So this is when the, this is when the, music, show, the music show gets kind of stormed by everybody, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah Lubit kind of loses it here. Gets kind of gets kind of bombastic with the threats. I I agree. Yeah. Uh, massive egregious tactical blunder from Julie here. <laughs> oh, Julie! God damn it, Julie! Just stay in your lane. But no, no, you had to wander in traffic, didn't you? Uh, yeah. So she uh, makes her way outside and uh, is confronted with what she believes in the moment to be her uh, hitherto dead mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's like okay, honey. <sighs> No more melting ghost babies, okay? <laughs> yeah, so that's ha- all I can think when I think about that is that part part from Rick and Morty. Rick and, and Morty. I'm like, oh god, yeah. melting dead melting ghost babies. See, see, incidentally, just that is genuinely one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a cartoon. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty fucked up. I liked it. Yeah, I, mean, I was absolutely genius, but Jesus Christ, man, honestly. Um, yeah, um, so. She has this kind of, she has this, re- what she thinks or what she views as being a reunion with her mum, uh-huh. who um, then kind of just like pivots straight out of, um, it's so good to see you again, straight into what we really need is the cosmic key. Can you get that for me and your dad? <laughs> <laughs> okay, mom. <laughs> Sure, whatever the cosmic key is, I'm still fresh to a lot of what's happening in this situation, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> Seems totally legit, and she runs in, steals the cosmic key, causes yet another gigantic fight and brawl between everyone, and like an absolute idiot, gives the key to her dead mother, who turns out to be Evil Lynn. Kel surprise. Which, yeah, I mean, I think that's incredibly easy to telegraph, but... Um, <laughs> 
the actual kind of reveal when it changes back to evil and it's quite nicely done. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think we should speed. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not dissing the uh, the the effects. I'm just like the plot. I'm just like, dude, how could you not like like your dead parents are just gonna ask for some, that something that specific? That's like a ghost going. I could really use a donut. Yeah. <laughs> specifically, it's just particularly <laughs> curious timing for your dead mother to ask you that question. If you could get yes, me this, we may never under We may never know and understand the mysterious way of the beyond. <laughs> <laughs> I would need to spare a thought here for Charlie, who uh, things move on pretty quickly, and he is really left with an insurance nightmare on his hands, and his livelihood has been destroyed. I'm really hoping he. Has- some kind of security footage because even on the uh, closed circuit TV thing, like watching the epic battle that takes place, handing that to your insurance company, and be like, "Listen, man, I couldn't make this shit up if I tried. Just watch, and if not, sell it to one of those shows and just pay me up my premium with this." Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah, that's kind of that is kind of glossed over. You know, poor Charlie's. Uh, yeah, he's got a mess on his hands. Skeletor joins the fray pretty much at this point. Yeah, although I don't know why. I've never understood why Skeletor feels he has to make the move to to America. I don't know. I think that like I think it would be understandable for him to be a bit fed up of how long it's taken, given that they've already kind of blundered their way through this one time. You know, I I, I think that him kind of like t- taking matters into his own hands seems like something that he might do. Yeah, it's like the manager's finally showing up. It's like, all right, okay, he's here. What's going on? And um, you know, I. Let's face it, these guys have probably fucked up a couple times before in the past. I'm guessing they do not have the most spotless track record given how many times Skeletor refuses, refu- refers to his uh, his guys as boobs. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that he's probably, like, even the best managers are like, you know what, I'm just going to check in. Nothing wrong with checking in, seeing where the progress support is, and then if it's something nothing to worry about, great. But if you got to step in, like in this situation in the music store. <laughs> what is it you call it? Walking the floor? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's precisely what's happening here, I think. Um, because he is kind of, when he gets there, he's visibly kind of like pretty irate at the continual ability of He-Man to like um, elude them. Well, he doesn't come alone. He brings his Air Centurions with him. Which, talking about the effects, the Air Centurions are, for my money, the worst effects in the film. <laughs> Using the action figures from the film on wires would have been more believable <laughs> than the Air Centurions. And in fact, when Dolph Lundgren steals one of the Air Centurions' little disc things and is riding about on it, it is far and away the most unintentionally funny thing in the film. It uh, it reminds me of that uh, music video for Shania Twain's uh, I'm Gonna Get You, where she's riding a CGI motorcycle and being chased by a giant robot. And I'm like, and that was technology in the 90s. This is the 80s. So, I, yeah. I, I remember that. I'm, that's, not that's... Fami- I'm not familiar with that, but it sounds amazing. I'm, I, I imagine what I'm seeing in my head is quite different to the reality of the music video. I can't wait to post the link to that video uh, all over all of our social media. <laughs> also, Tristan, congratulations on being the first person in 32 episodes to make a Shania Twain reference. Well, someone had to do it, and <laughs> goddammit, it, it would be a Canadian. I didn't imagine it would be you. <laughs> me neither somehow <laughs> oh, Skeletor and, and you're right Skeletor comes in he pretty much just goes look step aside and he wraps it all up perfectly within moments um, he, yeah, he has control again he's like yeah. okay this is why I'm in charge 
he does an amazing slow rise behind Man at Arms and Teela while they're in the middle of planning their next moves. He's like, surprise, assholes! Um, and then uh, <laughs> uh, some more clunky fighting takes place. Um, the fighting, I think you said, Mitch, that the melee combat in this is just it's ter- okay. terrible. I just think Dolph Lundgren's too big to move efficiently or his costume's restrictive or something, but it looks bad. There is probably a lot of reasons anywhere from those that you mentioned to maybe like maybe fight choreography is not some of these guys things but it's just like they're like I'm just gonna like really lowball it here and maybe the director will tell me if I need to turn it up 10% and I can do that (laughs) (laughs) something else that's just popped into my head was maybe it was another Mattel decision okay yeah Ah. like like where the fighting couldn't look too contacty or too brutal Right, because you weren't supposed to have killing, so it's like it had to be pretty PG yeah. fights, just, which would make sense. Yeah, it yeah, just, I hadn't considered that, but yeah, that, especially what you're saying about he wasn't obviously wasn't supposed to kill anybody. I mean, like if you follow that logic, it's like yeah, that that that's plausible. He just kind of pushes people away with his feet and push, push, like kind of flips them over his shoulders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't kill them, but I can flip a and somersault them to, to, until they get annoyed and they just leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yes, uh, Skeletor, as you say, like, kind of, like, takes charge of the situation pretty swiftly and um, pretty much levels a surrender or die to He-Man. Yeah. And then, yeah. like, surrender, come back, or stay here and perish with the rest of Earth. Julie's bleeding out at this point because she got uh, blasted yeah. by Skeletor. So uh, we've got we've got Julie still out, and uh, we've got Skeletor showing up, and He Man has this thing, and he decides to you know be a hero. As he, oh oh oh, Pr- Princess Diana's agitated. She uh, yes, the princess was issuing a statement. She thought it was Bojang that He Man just bent the knee. Is she a she thought he, uh, Yeah, <laughs> she's like, I like Skeletor. He's just covered in bones, and I just want to chew on him. <laughs> Chew that face right off. It's like you got to admit, like if you're Skeletor, you've got to be really wary around dogs. Maybe they don't have dogs on Eternia. Mm, maybe not. Battle. But, they have battle cats. Um, <laughs> I have a question about, and I would, I would, I would quite like to hear everyone's thoughts on this. See, when He-Man uh, makes the decision to uh, lay down his arms and gets taken back to Eternia, sure. Do we think that that is a genuine piece of self-sacrifice or do you think that that is in service of a better plan? Because as far as I can tell, as this plays out, he personally did not have one. He's never had a plan. I seriously think he was just like, well, this is the least amount of conflict and I don't want to punch anyone anymore. My shoulders are sore from all these flips. Yeah, Yeah, I'll go back with you. And he's not strong. He's just a man. I don't know. Like Maybe he should have studied sorcery more instead of going to the gym back on Eternia Mm. in high school. Should have opened a book. Yeah, maybe, maybe. One thing I would like Mm. to say here is I admire the fact that Skeletor's a man of his word because um, that is true He-Man says look right I'll come back I'll be your slave your big oily slave and um, then <laughs> I was uh, what's her name maybe that's all Skeletor really wanted oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen rule 34 I've seen the He-Man and 
uh, and Skeletor drawings and renderings. I know that there is a connection there. I think maybe this might... He didn't want to be master of the universe. He just wanted to be master of He-Man. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, he does... Plot twist. This is, this is actually a romantic comedy. <laughs> that, that explains a lot. Well, when he, when He Man's getting whipped very shortly in the story, Skeletor's like chewing on his staff. Like he looks quite aroused. He's quite into it. <laughs> See, if you watch it again with that in mind, all of a sudden some things make a lot more sense in this plot. You're like, oh, okay. Actually, yeah, okay. These these are my favorite things that happen in these conversations when somebody floats something essentially fanciful, and then you're like, oh wait, when you think about it though. Then all of a sudden, all the all the dots start connecting themselves. <laughs> hey, I took the horse to the river, and it's up to you guys to drink. And you just drink it in, darlings. Drink it in. Deep drops. <laughs> but your fuck off quotient started going through the roof here when um, when the, <laughs> our heroes started figuring out their plan to return to Eternia. This this was phenomenal. I said you know, it was fuck off question. I actually thought it was really funny. Um, when so yeah, they're gone. Well, He Man's gone. Skeletor's gone. Um, the rest of them are on Earth, kind of figuring out what to do next. Uh, Gwildor reckons that the main problem is uh, the the loss of the tones, the melody uh, for the cosmic yeah, the, key. The cosmic key doesn't make noise anymore. Okay, so problem number one is that, um, and also that um, nobody knows the melody. Yep. So Kevin uses his musician equivalent of photographic memory to instantly remember the melody. And then Gwildor then is like, right, okay, the next thing that we need is a basonic tesserot. Tila's got one. Which Tila has literally strapped to her shoulder. And it's like, oh, you mean this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, it's like, oh, that's great. If only we had an octone rectifier. And Man at Arms literally reaches into his pocket and goes, what about this? And hands it to him. <laughs> And it's just like, okay, I feel at this point I'm being put upon. (laughs) And then you said, you literally said, Mitch, if he goes and gets a keyboard. And then Kevin goes, hang on and I'll go and get a keyboard from Charlie's. And you're like, oh, (laughs) for fuck's sake. (laughs) I've never seen such an elaborate... There's one keyboard that made it out of that entire brawl in there. Yeah, Yeah, he comes back with the one keyboard that survived the Inferno. But I've never seen Mm -hmm. such an, I've never seen such an elaborate plan assemble itself so quickly. Literally, like in the measure, like in the time it takes to describe the problems, they have solved themselves. <laughs> yeah, and it just reminds me of like the Bat Belt on um, Adam West's Batman in the Batman movie, where he's got like the shark repellent spray, like repellent not in the spray. back, like yeah, 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 and it's like right there on the belt, like right up front, like where you keep your keys, kind of thing. And I'm like, <laughs> how often are you using? Like, the bat, like, shark repellent spray. Like, how often are you fighting with sharks, man? Like, leave that shit to Aquaman. Yeah. It's funny you talk <laughs> about, like, utility belts. At one point, me and Mitch did say to each other, He-Man keeps, like, reaching behind his back and pulling stuff out. He's only wearing <laughs> pants. Because he's keeping it in his prison wallet. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> no, no, you can, we don't want your basonic tesseract. <laughs> <laughs> Again, rule 34 <laughs> um, I was right about this point as well that Gwildor says I'll have this ready in a preton And it always makes me laugh <laughs> <laughs> It did not make me laugh um, <laughs> um, 
Skeletor addresses Eternia at this point, and um, uh, Moonrise arrives. Yeah. Um, the power transfers. He gets the power of the universe, and he golds right up as well. I love the fact that getting the power of the universe immediately comes with an upgrade to a vampire outfit. Yeah. He's well. like, I'm pimp, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Frank Langella wrote a lot of his own dialogue here. And <laughs> one of my favorite, he, he wrote this, and I think it's fucking great. It's the best line in the film. It's when he goes like that to He Man and goes, Tell me about the loneliness of good, He Man. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? And I just think, oh, that's a fucking great line. It's such a bleak, <laughs> such a bleak kind of <laughs> existentialist line. And uh, it just feels so out of place in a film that's this fucking hammy, where he is dressed like that and he's talking to Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, I, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's an incredibly nihilistic moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it got dark. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like, like okay well we can't have anybody kill each other but we can like you know have these kinds of existential crises for the kids when they're playing with their toys yeah, yeah. and torture their hero yeah 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 because it's, yeah it's, of course it's around here that the, uh, the, the whipping happens <laughs> um and uh everyone that was on earth and and based on the amount of extras you see i mean literally everyone on earth but like um <laughs> the main characters and half of the street um gets teleported with the cosmic key the cosmic key going over and above the call of duty taking not only the characters but um a small portion of wall and pavement and i believe a car um to grayskull with them and it's and at this point we're kind of uh motoring straight into the final standoff yeah and lubick's come along for the ride he's now uh, he's yeah now... because why not yes and i love the fact that once they're there he spent the entire film being like uh obviously trying to rationalize it in real world terms but as soon as they get to castle grayskull and people start shooting at him. He's like, oh, fuck you. Yeah. He actually says... <laughs> He's just over it. Yeah. He says, nobody takes shots at Lubick, and he starts just, like, firing his shotgun at these big, shiny black robots. Yeah, just indiscriminately into the back of robots. <laughs> <laughs> you got to respect a man who's just like, listen, I was fine on my world, but now I'm wherever I am, and I got to feed my cat at 6.30, and I am just done. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I have places to be. But he might... Yeah, he's like, I have to fill out so much paperwork, you guys. Come on, this is bullshit. I'm going to be there all night. Well, I'm just going to go to curling. Curling. <laughs> he does look like a guy who is like, he's, he's like in a curling team or a bowling team or something. Lawn bowling, maybe. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But He-Man gets free during the skirmish here. And uh, as we can expect, as we've all been waiting for, he uh, gets. He's like, come on, dude! You've got to have a win somewhere. You get, you got tired real easy. Uh, you're not that strong. At least get out of your your bonds relatively quickly to the plot. <laughs> yeah. What is that squeaking noise? Oh, that's Princess Diana. <laughs> is... She's got a squeaky ball. <laughs> a squeaky quilt. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, she's got his. <laughs> She, the funny thing is that there's dogs upstairs and I can hear them going crazy because they can hear a toy that they're like, well, you don't have it and I don't have it. That means there's a toy in this house that someone's playing with that neither of us have. <laughs> the fuck is this shit? <laughs> but the final battle, um, He-Man reclaims his sword and it says the line, we've all been waiting to hear, I have the power. Um, and it's uh, a complete anticlimax because nothing actually happens. He doesn't become stronger. He doesn't have Battle Cat. And 
the final battle is just more very slow sword play. It does make it, 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 it does make the final battle slightly better choreographed. Maybe that's the <laughs> the sole effect. I, I disagree. Is it better? I didn't say good. <laughs> it's very sparky and flashing lights, but there's no finesse. No. Well, the, I think the biggest thing that um, is kind of like the most, oh my gosh, because it's still pretty cartoony, is uh, Skeletor's death during at the end of this this fight, because it reminded me of that thing where you see Wiley e. Coyote fall off a cliff and he just becomes like smaller and smaller and then poof. So it's like a very convenient way to kill off a character without being like, and then he died. <laughs> Sorry about the No, 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 puppy. that's okay. That's all right. It's not a problem. It's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right, guys. Jen, Jen Soska can answer for this. <laughs> well, you know, Princess Diana. She is a princess. She doesn't understand why it's not about her. Oh, that's that's yeah. just like you've been talking that's on the phone long enough. Play with my squeaky toy. That's fine. And I have, I have, uh, I have watched Princess Diana grow from a small dog into a slightly larger dog. So, and she's still growing. Yeah, I've quite, I've quite enjoyed the journey so far. So I don't, I don't particularly, <laughs> I don't particularly mind it. Um, yeah, but, we're all here for the puppy. But yeah, Skeletor dies alone, sadly, because um, Beastman and Evil Lynn just run away. Yeah. <laughs> Those boobs. They're just like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, I'm just... Those boobs! <laughs> Your boobs! <laughs> um, so I love the fact that when we come out of this, it, it it's played out like there's been a passage of time, but it also looks like it's the immediate aftermath of what's just happened. Uh-huh. But in that time... Um, Everyone seems to have calmed down considerably, and also Lubick, from what we can tell, has immediately gained both a wife and presumably a high-ranked government position. <laughs> he lives in Grayskull now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but- he's like, maybe I'll stay. <laughs> it's like, well, it's like, it looks like things are going pretty great, man. You might as well stay. And I know you were talking about paperwork. You don't need to worry about that. You can forget that. Well, unless he's... I mean, there was a fair amount of trouble on Eternia. Oh, he's got like less of a desk job and more of like the field work that he was looking for that he was left unfulfilled with on his home planet. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that he went to Eternia, helped save the day, and then landed a gig as a payroll administrator at Castle Grayskull. Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and at this point, uh, Gwildor sends uh, Julie and uh, Kevin. Yeah, Gwildor now has little gold bows in his hair. He's also been obviously been elevated. Kind of like when... Look, I just fucking don't want to talk about it. <laughs> kind of like when uh, Chewbacca's hair's brushed at the end of uh, Star Wars and like uh, C-3PO's all shined up. You know, he's had a good polish. Yeah. Uh, Gwildor's had a bit of a... His hair's been brushed and he's got little gold ribbons in his hair. Um, only... You know, it's the same thing as uh, the cowardly lion from the Wizard oh, of Oz yeah, when absolutely. they go into the Emerald City, and he gets like he gets his hair did. Yeah, he's got curls in his hair. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Gwildor's kind of final act in the film, uh, for our purposes anyway, is that he sends Julie and Kevin home. Uh-huh. Not just home, obviously. Uh, home, yeah, like to right or wrong. Right. Okay. In that we kind of. We rejoin the fray when Julie wakes up and she is in the position to save her parents. Yeah, this is before they leave to go on their ill-fated flight and instead of itching them to go hang out with her boyfriend, she's just like, no, you can't get on that plane. Yep, yep. And um, uh, and then, yeah, she grabs the key. She grabs kind of like the keys for the plane, question mark, and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like this will stop you. Yep. Yeah, hey, whatever gets the job done. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. get the job done. It does. Now, do we suppose that that was because we've already established that Gwildor doesn't know what the fuck he's doing? Do we suppose that was an accident? <laughs> a, a lucky. Well, I am open to the idea that that was completely serendipitous because right before they go, he was like, we can send you to the past or the future. And they're basically like, no, man, we're good. Just like send us back. And then she wakes up and it just so happens to be that day. I'm going to put it down to Gwildor's incompetence leading to a lucky fluke. Yeah, I think too, um, because she never had a chance to have a conversation with him about like, like he was kind of watching them in the the graveyard, but he doesn't really know context. He doesn't know when her parents died, whether it was like last week or like two years ago, or so. Unless she's like, and by the way, this is the year that they pass. Well, it does have yeah. the it does have the dates of their passing on the tombstone. Right. You're assuming he can read like our uh, alphabet. We're giving him way no. too much credit here. He doesn't even know what a cow was. <laughs> Fucking idiot. <laughs> Fair enough. Moo. <laughs> no, I'm, Moo! I'm I'm sticking with I'm sticking with happy accident for this. Um, that's my, that's my, yeah, that's, that's my final happy answer. Yeah, let's go with Yeah. And with that, we're pretty much out, with the exception of a ridiculous post-credit sequence that I am quite a fan of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly one Krellulon long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll have this ready in a pre-talk. Stop it. <laughs> uh, he, uh, yeah, I swear to God, I will turn this car around next year. Skeletor <laughs> rises from lava? Yeah, and, uh, and, and it screams, "I'll be back!" Yeah, and sadly, although that and he never was. Yeah, no. never. Yeah, it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. It was certainly the plan. Okay. Um, they had a script written. Uh, Dolph Lundgren was being replaced with some, I believe, an Australian surfer whose name escapes me. Um, but Frank Langella, I think, had committed to doing another one. <laughs> and yeah, it, it never happened. This film cost twenty-two million dollars, and it made seventeen. Uh, it was yeah. A, Commercial and critical failure, hmm. and uh, it, people still love it. It received my first negative review. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> and here it comes. <laughs> Seven-year-old thumbs down. <laughs> Tristan, this was a hell of a pick. Um, oh, thank you, uh, thank you. I think that I probably like it more having spoken about it. I think that um, we've hit on some stuff that that's kind of softened my stance on it a little bit. But I. Like I say, it was a first watch for me, and I would say that this is not so much something that I wouldn't seek out on my own as much as something that, if left to my own devices, I would probably actively avoid. So I would say that, like, I'm, like I would say that I'm probably, so I was probably starting from less than zero in the first place. Um, but, um, but I think that there's 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 some stuff to like in there, but I find some of it to be pretty hard work. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's not an easy film to love, and I mean, I love it just because nostalgia is so powerful. It is probably one of the powerful things on the planet, oh, yeah. and I am unfortunately incredibly susceptible to it. Oh yeah, we all are. I think I think that we all have our version of that. Yeah. Andy, as he looks at his Skeletor tattoos on his forearms. <laughs> yeah, Andy has no idea what you mean. <laughs> um, Andy. <laughs> And the, because, know, you see, because you've seen it so many times, what I'll ask you is, um, obviously, like, there's no there's no particular reason why watching it another time, after uh-huh. having seen it a bunch of times, your stance was going to even start reversing on it, really. Off the back of this conversation. Uh, okay. 
Has it informed any, potentially any, perhaps any future viewings you may have of Masters of the Universe? Well, what I will tell you is that there is no way that tonight was the last time I'm going to watch Masters of the Universe. Same. Simply, <laughs> simply not going to be the last time I watch Masters of the Universe. What I will say is that I still feel like it was my first cinematic disappointment. But looking at it, I guess, from the eyes of, I guess, kind of like a filmmaker and a kind of film reviewer and stuff like that, there are things to like about Masters of the Universe. Um, I think that, like I said earlier, Franklin Geller's performance is super strong. Super strong as Skeletor. There's, there's, I mean, I, I, would, I think that he's the strongest link in the chain here, probably. But mm-hmm. I, I think that performance-wise, there's a, a couple of people doing pretty good work here, yeah, I think. I, I think Courtney Cox is good in it. Uh, I think the guy that plays Charlie's really good. I feel like Man at Arms and Tila are really wishy-washy. Um, <laughs> and the less said about Dolph, the better, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but uh, God bless him. He did it. And uh, so far, he's the only person to portray He-Man in a film. Um, That's ha- true. <laughs> and I have always said that if someone was to turn around to me and just say, right, you can have one franchise in the world and you can make your interpretation of it. it wouldn't be a horror thing it wouldn't be anything uh anything else then i would say right well i want to do masters of the universe again so it would be my dream franchise as a filmmaker to take on a masters of the universe film so there's a lot of things to love about masters of the universe but i think when you're a seven-year-old coming off the back of the toys and the and the, the, the cartoon, cartoons yeah um, yeah uh, it does leave you a bit like, what the fuck am I watching? This is not what I think. <laughs> this is not what I know. <laughs> what I think is interesting As about I went this... home and cut up my He-Man membership card. <laughs> Goodbye, Axon. <laughs> Axon is dead. <laughs> um, uh, what I, I what one thing that I think is interesting about this is that as I kind of I'm gonna put myself in the impartial camp here mm-hmm. and say that what I think is interesting about the conversation that we've had is that you guys are coming at from two very different sides of the same nostalgic coin, which is basically that just like you say, um, you loved it when you were younger. And as a result, like, and that's kind of followed you in adulthood. And now you love it for reasons that you can't really quantify from like a critical perspective. And Andy, you were so irritated by it when you were younger that you're now only you're only really now conceding that there are things about it to like at all. Irritated is a great one. Yeah, I just had a flash of me thinking, like, like an irritated seven year old, like what the fuck is fucking shit? This yeah. is fucking bullshit. <laughs> the fuck this. Like, just, Tristan, Tristan's two days younger than me, so yeah. it's like we come at it from a ve- like almost exact same kind of age bracket mm-hmm. that we watched this film mm-hmm. and um. Yeah, it's uh, it's just an interesting divergence to go from a uh, someone who's taken the nostalgia and, and ran with it to someone whose nostalgia is so strong in the opposite way that it's left them completely hating this film. <laughs> that it's left them, <laughs> that it's left them completely. And then you have the full spectrum, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Nostalgia at its finest and its worst. Yeah, so, someone who loves Masters of the Universe and someone who's incapable of love. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tristan, before we finish up, is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to take the time to talk about? Um, I am excited to be bringing snake yoga to Vancouver come January. We have some amazing guest teachers lined up to teach yoga while you go through your asanas with snakes on top of you. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had lots of uh, positive and negative responses to that. Some people are super into the idea and other people not as much, as I'm sure you can imagine. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And uh, I have a New Year's Eve show, which is going to be a um, cabaret presentation of Dr. Capellius based on the uh, opera Capellia. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm elevating the lowbrow art form of striptease and circus here, slowly but surely. Awesome. <laughs> and then aside, I have uh, Rabid coming out in the new year, which is the Cronenberg remake that the Saskas directed. Yeah. Starring Laura Vandervoort. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I think yeah. that's, I think that's, um, that's coming out over here. I, th I think it's the end of March, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's it's kind of my hope that that might crop up at Freyfest Glasgow. That's on my that's on my wish list for that. I think. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that would be really nice. That would be nice. Yes. I'm as you can imagine, Tristan. I'm incredibly interested about this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's, yeah. I'm very interested to see what how this goes down. Yeah, I'm kind of intrigued by it. What was um What was that experience like working on that? It was interesting because there was a lot of people. Who on set who were also um, people who had worked and crewed for David Cronenberg himself. So it was nice to kind of have a lot of them saying, yeah, this is a lot like David's sets. This is very similar. Um, and it was really reassuring to have that there. And then just the talent of everybody involved. Like The costumes are amazing. Um, we had a lot of help from uh, Roger Gingrich, who runs Toronto Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. And um, he was he was really key in helping shape like kind of the visual um, of this film, and uh, Laura Vandervoort, who plays uh, Rose, the protagonist, um, taking over for Marilyn Chambers. She was just amazing. Like she 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 was Marilyn and then some. And I think people are going to be really amazed to see this updated interpretation. And oh my God, sometimes like the way Laura shifts her head. Sometimes she looks like Debbie Harry. Sometimes she looks like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. She always looks amazing. I can't wait for people to see her in this. Yeah, I can't wait. To yeah, see this. I'm looking forward to yeah. this. Yeah, this is uh, yeah, this is high on my. Let's check this one out list for next year. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Tristan. Oh yeah, and when you see the effects that Master Effects have come up with for it, you'll be like, and fresh new monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Tristan, um, where can people get you on social media? They can find me on the Instagram as, at either at Little Miss Risk or at Caravan of Curiosities. They can find me under either. They can find me on the Twitter at Little Miss Risk. And they can find me on the Facebooks at Tristan Risk or else the Caravan of Curiosities. But I'm pretty easy to track down online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tristan, thank you for doing this. It's been lovely speaking to you. I've not spoken to you in ages. I know. It's been too long, and this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank oh, you so much for you. having me and, no, and no, no. inviting me to take part in this. No, this no, was no. a fun little social experiment. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to see how many Gwildor um, lovers there are out there. That, that, if nothing else, that's the one piece of research I want us to find, like, to kind of properly hammer out on this. I want to answer that question. <laughs> Gwildorks. It's like, who are you? Yeah. Who are you weirdos? So yourselves. There's probably, yeah. <laughs> a, group, there's probably a whole group of them. Gwildorks, Gwildorians. Oh, they're all, uh, yeah, they're all like holed up somewhere together and they're like wearing the t-shirts and trading the action figures and stuff and they're like, one day our time will come. Yeah, like a whole subculture. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like bronies. <laughs> like bronies. Like bronies. Of all the things to choose. <laughs> I'll try, oh, <laughs> 
Well, uh, well, Tristan, uh, we won't say goodbye. Uh, we don't do that. We will instead say good journey. Good journey. Good journey. So, uh, no real chinks in the armour of seven-year-old Andy's cynicism, then. <laughs> no, I haven't come wheeling out of this uh, saying that this is a great film because I don't think it is a particularly great film. It is a fun film, though. Um, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> um, there's a whole lot of nothing going on for a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> It's kind of a police procedural that's got He-Man in it, or, <laughs> or an approximation of He-Man. Yeah, there's there's a, there's a surprising amount of bureaucracy in this film. Yeah. <laughs> but a big thank you to Tristan Risk for joining us tonight and uh, chatting Masters of the Universe with us. Yeah, that was fun. That's, that's really good. Thank yeah. you, Tristan. And um, I guess that's just about it. But um, do you want to take a minute to remind you, as we have been doing pretty regularly right now, we uh-huh. are still looking for your suggestions for an upcoming uh, Listener's Choice show. Mm-hmm. And if you've been living under a rock or you've missed the last few episodes, just to catch you up, basically, we have agreed with a guest from a previous episode to come back and talk about a film with us. But it won't be them that's choosing it. It will be one of you. Um, we've had some amazing suggestions for this. Um, and the only way you can do it is by getting in touch at stronglanguageviolentscenes at gmail.com. So it's emails only, like I say, because we want a little bit of a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like we do in a normal episode when the guest comes on and tells us the reasons why they've picked the film, um, the impact it's had on them, and um, why they think people should give it the time of day rather than just uh, ignoring it and consigning it to history. Um, we would like the same kind of depth from you guys, just a little bit of uh, context as to what it is about the film that you think uh, is important and demands to be reseen. Yeah, and, and we've had some great submissions for this so far. I've had a really good time reading through them all and kind of just hearing some stories about um, which films you guys would choose. I've um, got some great ones. I think whatever we end up choosing, it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, most definitely. But, um, yeah, we're going to keep this open for a little while longer. So it's, like I say, it's emails only, scenes at gmail.com if uh, you want to do that. Yeah. And with that, that's just about us until Monday. Yeah. Um, at which point, of course, we'll be back with another mini-sode. All the usual stuff, what we've been watching, Mitch vs. Shockwaves 100. Mitch's slow, slow battle with the Shockwaves 100. It's tedious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, At this point, I don't think any of the listeners would care if we just stopped doing it. That is so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of like, I'm kind of just studiously doing it. Dutifully doing it. Um, Because now I'm a bit of a completist in this way. So I think that my interest in the subject is going to persist way longer than the listeners, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Because we have to do it. I have to do that. I mean, like, I find, like, this fi- time next year, I'm just probably still going to be at it. I'm but. finding it painful, if I'm honest. <laughs> Remember the one week you did three of them? I know. Fucking hell, I know. Man. So, though, I, um, I'm going to be in a position to do more stuff like that soon. Right, okay. And some background stuff, sort of. I've got a new place to live, all that yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can start hitting it a little bit harder. Okay. Uh, going forward. And of course, on the mini-sode, we will also be playing Mitch's Pitches. Hey! Um, and hearing your suggestions for Mitch's Pitches, which is now becoming one of my favourite things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there have been some great ones this week, once again, already. Yeah. But if you want to get in touch with us between now and then, Facebook and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at StrongViolentPC. And once again, you can email us StrongLanguageViolentScenes at gmail.com. Yep, and as you know, we are available now just about everywhere. Um, but please, 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 just do us that little favour. Whatever you are listening, if you can just take two little seconds to like us or share us or uh, rate and review us, whatever it is, wherever it is, uh, it would really be quite helpful to us, and we would love you forever. Yeah, we don't, we don't ask for much. No, 
I don't think so. But no, um, uh, yeah, as you say, we are getting around. We're pretty much everywhere you get podcasts now, but a particular thanks to Podbean for hosting us. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Podbean. So we will be back Monday, 8 a.m. GMT. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, every destination is but a doorway to another. Good journey. Good journey. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.